Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm convinced that I speak fluent French, but I literally, I don't. I don't. I'm lying to myself. <laughs> Well, my guest this week, Amy, when I say that, I feel so professional and just like, you know what I mean? My guest this week on Women's Hour. Anyway, my guest this week is Professor David Nutt. He is a psychiatrist and also for the last 15 years has been doubling down on psychedelics and their use, particularly for people who they call treatment resistant. And I started out by just asking him to define what psychedelics are. The psychedelics we work with are what we call serotonergic psychedelics. Uh, they're drugs like LSD, like DMT, ayahuasca, psilocybin. Although clinically we cannot use those for treatment at present. They can only be used for research. So in the, in a clinical setting, we use ketamine, which is a sort of psychedelic. It produces similar disruptions in the brain. Um, not exactly the same. People can tell the difference, but it's the best we've got for clinical use at present. I think it's important to say ayahuasca is a plant medicine. Something taken from the plant produces a, an alternate state, I suppose, for want of a better phrase. Psilis, D, what did you mention? D, P, D? DMT. So... DMT is the active ingredient in ayahuasca. Ayahuasca is a remarkable discovery. It, it's kind of applied psychopharmacology. It came out of the Amazon jungle several thousand years ago. And the indigenous people worked out that if you put together two separate plants, you get an effect, which you don't get if you use one or the other. And it turns out the reason you've got to put the two together is it is that one of them contains DMT, the active ingredient that, that is a psychedelic. If you take DMT orally, the liver just chews it up so it doesn't get in the brain. But if you put the other plant in, it releases a substance or you, you boil them up together and you get in the liquid, you get a substance which prevents the liver breaking down the DMT so you can drink it and it gets in the brain. And then psilocybin is something that is found in mushrooms, am I right? That's right, magic mushrooms. There are 200 different species of magic mushrooms all over the world. There are mushrooms that make this substance called psilocybin, which is another psychedelic. And you can eat that. Yes. Because we've been doing a lot of studies looking at psychedelics and, and how you can use psychedelics to treat disorders like depression, addiction, anorexia, OCD. Uh, but perhaps one of the most interesting things we discovered is that in the field of depression, if you do brain imaging of people whose depression has been lifted by psychedelics, and uh, you compare those images with those of people whose depression has been treated but not lifted with say a traditional antidepressant you find that there are fundamental different processes and they work in different parts of the brain in very different ways and that's very exciting it's exciting certainly for people who up till now not done well on traditional antidepressants they've now got an alternative and also it helped us understand why some people don't do well on traditional antidepressants which is because they dampen down depression but they can also dampen down 
other emotions like pleasure and, and enjoyment. So people often notice that they just get restricted in their emotional capacity, whereas what psychedelics do is they work completely differently. They break down the, the negative thinking loops that persist in depression. And what does it do to the body when it goes in? What is it doing? Well, they do some things in the gut. Sometimes people get nauseous. In fact, part of the ayahuasca ceremony is purging either through the mouth or through the back. Yes. Because actually, a lot of people don't realise that there's more serotonin in the gut than in the brain. But that's another story. Anyway, eventually the DMT or the LSD or the psilocybin gets through the gut into the brain and then it sticks on a particular receptor in the brain. Serotonin is a really important chemical transmitter in the brain. And there are 15 different types of serotonin receptors. And they do all sorts of different things from detecting the level of carbon dioxide in your blood to giving you hallucinations and psychedelic experiences. And that particular receptor that these drugs work on is called the 5-HC2A receptor. It's highly expressed in the very most human parts of the brain, the parts of the brain where we do our thinking, our feeling, our planning, our imagining. And psychedelics go in there and they turn on that receptor and you have this strange altered state of consciousness. And when that happens, how is it creating effects that last past the initial period of, of going to an alternate state? Yeah, well, that's, of course, the great question. And that has never been possible to address until the modern era. And this is where I think you know, we've made maybe our biggest contribution. So what we have done over the last 15 years is to do what we call brain imaging studies on people under the influence of psychedelics. And we've discovered that a trip is a state in which the brain becomes much more connected than it was before. And the reason we now think that people recover during a trip, well, there, there are three reasons. The first is that during a trip, you break down all the resistances to confronting your problems you have to go there you have to go to where the problems are because you can no longer resist it so people get to deal with their problems that they have been avoiding maybe for decades the second thing is because the brain is more connected you can take new perspectives you can get new insights we call it you know new solutions to old problems you can think differently and suddenly you get insights hey it's not my fault that i you know i was abused by my father as one of our patients said it was his fault and that transforms it from being a victim or believing it was your fault that your father abused you to say, no, no, it's his fault. Absolutely. And thinking differently. And then the third thing that happens is that a state of neuroplasticity occurs during the trip, which means that if you lay down new, improved ways of thinking, they persist. But on top of all that, now with the brain imaging, we can see that that change in thinking state, which is associated with a, a greater ability to think clearly. And patients often describe it as like defragging the hard drive or putting a some kind of virus scan through and your brain works more fluently. And we can see that when we image people, we don't image people with depression during the trip because that would interfere with the therapeutic value. But if we do it after the trip, either one day or three weeks after, we can see that their brains are more flexible. They can, the brain is working more efficiently. It is like a reset or a defrag of a computer drive. Am I right in thinking when, we, when I hear you talk about, I mean, the thing that gets me really excited is neuroplasticity. Mm -hmm. that we have these sort of grooves of thinking I guess correct and that you can create new neural pathways new thoughts new roads new grooves that's right I guess and does that work with feeling states as well well it certainly works with mood states if that's what you mean by feelings yeah because I'm always so interested in thinking as well as feeling one of the big problems is that people think too much and that's one of the things we break down in psychedelics 
we get people out of these ruts of thinking, I'm a bad person, I'm a bad person, I'm an alcoholic, all I care about is alcohol. Those loops, repetitive ruminations about things that are bad for you, you can, by destroying that process during the trip, it gives people a chance to escape from it. Here's a, and we're going quite nuanced, but I know you have the capacity for it. I think sometimes people go into thinking loops because it's a way of protecting oneself away from traumatic feelings. It is. No, absolutely. That's how what, how I've found it in my past. Well, there's a much broader body of neuroscience research. It says that a lot of what the brain is doing is trying to stop things happening, to suppress memories. And uh, one of the problems with humans is that we have become extremely good at language. And we use language internally and externally to kind of represent or to deal with emotions. And actually, it's not very good at that. <laughs> Yeah, emotions are a sort of parallel universe, and and you've got to get them in balance. And and current, I think humans are too verbal. You know, we uh, we rely too much on trying to make sense of things using what is a very powerful, sophisticated phenomenon called language, but it's not anything like sophisticated enough to deal with the complexities of emotions. If I came into your clinic or to where you would do images of my brain, and I was in a state, so let let me give an example. I feel things very deeply, so I can wake up quite often in the morning and I will be in a, just a major anxious state, like my body's gone into hypervigilance. Mm -hmm. And how I get out of it over years of years is trying to show my body that, you know, it's okay, you are, a big thing for me is validation and love and you're being noticed. So it's obviously a frozen mm -hmm. part from mm -hmm. somewhere. Mm -hmm. When I can feel that, I literally can go from heightened anxiety, suicidal ideation, for a minute later mm. being like, oh, and I walk the dog now. Mm. I mean, it's so fascinating to me. Mm. If I came into your clinic, what would you potentially see that's going on in my body and how would psilocybin go for it? I can answer the first part easily. You know, if we were to scan you before, during and after one of those anxiety attacks, we would see emotional centers of the brain becoming very active. Whether we could use psilocybin immediately to get rid of that is a bit, I'm not sure we could, to be honest. For a start, you know, the psilocybin trip lasts four or five hours. So it will get in the way of the rest of your day. And whether, whether it would actually, it would certainly change the way you thought. But generally taking psychedelics when you are very anxious, it's a bit challenging and not something we do. I mean, we prepare people, we give them a lot of education. We try to get them as calm as possible for the trip because the trips themselves can be quite challenging and that can lead to anxiety. So, so we wouldn't be using psilocybin to deal with a transient yes. episode of anxiety like you have. I think your approach, you know, either to try to use breathing or, or even actually to think about something else, you know, just to distract yourself yes. can be actually, that can be a powerful way of-, of So that's very interesting. So your clients, you prepare them to get into the most relaxed state possible to then go into the trip. Let's talk about the clinic then. How did that come about? Well, I've been researching psychedelics you know, 15 or more years now. And I've been pushing and pushing and pushing to get them rescheduled so we can use them as medicines. And, and that has, in this country, has fallen on deaf ears. And it's really quite sad is that we led the world in psychedelic research 10 years ago. We did the first study that showed it worked in resistant depression. We were right ahead of the game. And in the last 10 years, the government has refused to fund our research. And it's also refused to change the laws and make it easier for us to do the research. Whereas, you know, Australians have now made psilocybin a medicine and MDMA in medicine for treatment-resistant disorders. But we're, we're still in this mode, drugs are bad and illegal drugs are bad, and let's make cannabis a class A drug, which is beyond absurd. So basically, we cannot use these drugs 
except in research trials, and we can get funding for research trials in patients. So what I have started doing is working with the, a company called Awaken Life Sciences that has set up a number of ketamine clinics. So ketamine is the best we can do at present. And, and what we do there is we use ketamine in a similar way to we, way we would use psilocybin. We produce a trip in people. We allow them to go through the experiences. And then afterwards, and this is the critical thing, we work with them to maximize the benefits and the insights that they get from the trip. Currently, clinically, we can only use ketamine because it's a licensed medicine. It's not licensed for what we use it for. It's licensed as an anesthetic, but because it's a licensed medicine, we can buy it, we can order it, pharmacists can bring it to us, we can prescribe it off license for conditions such as addiction, alcoholism in particular, and depression. But having set up these clinics using ketamine, we're now in a very strong position. Should the law change and MDMA and psilocybin be approved as medicines, we'll be ready and willing to use those in the near future. Do you think they would have even more of an effect than ketamine? An interesting question. Does psilocybin and MDMA, will they be better than ketamine? Now, what we know is that a single dose of psilocybin tends to produce much longer lasting effects than a single dose of ketamine. And there are technical reasons for that. MDMA works differently. It's, it's not a psychedelic. MDMA works on the emotional circuits. It helps people deal with trauma. And there, the American studies from Matt suggest that maybe three MDMA treatments over the course of a few weeks can produce very long-lasting changes. So the way we're seeing it is that we've got, you know, generally, no treatment works in everyone. Uh, and some people would prefer not to have a psychedelic experience. They prefer MDMA, and others would perhaps prefer those with depression in particular prefer a psychedelic. But the great thing is to have more, to have choice. The more options you've got, the more chance you have of getting everyone well. And why are governments resistant to it? They'll tell you, if you ask the government or the Home Office, they'll say, because drugs are harmful. And I'll say, well, hang on a sec, but you know, these drugs are actually helping people. And the benefits completely outweigh the harms. Countless studies and countless expert groups have said this. And they say, no, no, drugs are harmful. You can't actually have a dialogue with them. And the truth is, there are some very conservative people in this country, some very conservative newspapers, who see drugs as a moral question. They actually would rather persist with that position and see people suffer because they can't get access to treatment than concede that they were wrong and then get the law changed. It's a tragedy, I think, because I think it's in, you know interesting you hearing you say people admitting that they're wrong. For me, it's isn't even a thing about being right or wrong it's about one of the wonders of being human is that we develop and we find new things and how wonderful that people can have noticed that there are these natural occurring things that can help people who are treatment resistant to all other medication it's a way of the way that these things have been framed isn't it there's a sort of shame to it well well it is appalling it is the worst censorship of clinical treatment and research in the history of the world. But do you think it's a money thing as well? There's a lot of money in the drug companies. Surely they come with a lot of clout. I don't think the drug companies care about psychedelics. Almost every drug company has pulled out of research into mental health. Almost no. every company. Yeah, genuinely. So the people that make, I'm picking something out, venlafaxine or lamotrigine, and it can be called different brands, but they're not now doing research. They've just stopped. There used to be 30 major companies working in the field of mental health, mental illness. Now there are two. It's that time where we have a little break for an ad and I'll be back. 
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Where do you get your funding from? Well, mostly from philanthropists. Almost all our money comes yeah. from donors. Though luckily, there are quite a few people out there who have made money and think psychedelics help them. And in the classic, you know, Steve Jobs said, I invented the biggest company in the world called Apple, based on the fact that after a trip, I'd realized the secret was to put art and engineering together and make beautiful machines. And I'm sitting in front of one now. And many, there are quite a few rich people who've donated to our centre to do that. And now more and more, there are charities, charities that, that want to help young people, that want to help addicts who don't see anything novel coming. So they're coming to us and saying, can you help our people? Mm. And how did you get interested in the field? So I presume you studied psychiatry. Yes. When I was an undergraduate, one of my tutors was one of the people who actually discovered that the brain was a chemical organ. Up to that point in the late 1960s, people assumed that the brain was like a telephone exchange. It was lots of electrical wires going in and the cells talk to each other through electricity. And then in the 1960s, we realized that actually the communication between the cells was chemical. They're called neurotransmitters. And they hop between the cells, hop between the gaps between the cells, we call synapses. And so I was, you know, I was sitting there being taught by the people that were, were rewriting the whole concept of the brain from an electrical organ to a chemical organ. Now, of course, what is a drug? A drug is a chemical. If you want to study a chemical organ, you've got to use drugs that perturb the chemicals. And that's why I'm a neuropsychopharmacologist. I use drugs to treat people and I use drugs to explore the brain. So we're, we're sort of a, our own walking pharmacy, aren't we, really? We sure are. We sure are. We're 80 different neurotransmitters in the brain. I think we probably even haven't, haven't discovered all of them yet. And they all do different things. And it's even more complicated because many of them do multiple things. I mentioned serotonin already. I mean, you've got 15 different serotonin receptors. Each of them is doing something different. It's fascinating. Can you tell me some examples of what you've seen, how you've seen people change in your clinic? We've seen people who have been depressed for 20 or 30 years and have given up hope. People who've been on 15 different antidepressants, they've been on psychotherapy, they've thought they were untreatable. And we've seen them within a day, within hours, actually, of having a psilocybin trip. We've seen them go back to where they were before, to get back to a state of understanding themselves, not blaming themselves, enjoying life. And when you do 
the brain imaging afterwards, what areas of the brain are you seeing? Is there less activity in, in the amygdala, let's say, mm. or in the hippocampus? What's interesting about the effect of psychedelics is they disrupt all the brain, or at least all the cortex, all the, the thinking parts of the brain. And then afterwards, as I mentioned before, the, the brain is more connected. But what is what's particularly important is that the part of the brain which drives this repetitive thinking becomes more able to engage with other parts of the brains. So there's a part of the brain called the executive network where you do your thinking. If the part of the brain which is driving your feelings can't engage with your thinking, you can't use your thinking to change your feelings. And that's why these people have all failed on CBT, because CBT is a therapy where you try to think your way out of your feelings but if those two circuits can't engage well after after the treatment they do engage your brain our brain everyone's brain has got more computing power than all the computers on earth your brain is like it's about 40 billion computers linked up that's just awesome but for it to work properly they've got to be talking properly and in disorders like depression some of them don't talk to the others so you've got blocks well it's a bit like the world it's like humans you know (laughs) We have countries who don't speak to, you know, I mean, it's almost like the networks of the brain get segregated from each other for reasons which aren't useful. And then if they can't speak, you can't break down. Those you know, this is very interesting because we have come on this podcast occasionally back to when CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, thinking therapy, you know, think your way out of something, mm. think your way into easier feelings, let's say. And so many people, I think, and I would include myself in the past, it can bring about a certain amount of frustration, certainly, and even shame when I'm not getting the thinking right. So what's really interesting hearing from you, because I've always thought through my trauma work that, well, if I'm in a state of heightened anxiety and a particular area of my brain is up and running, there's no way I'm going to be able to sit there and think, you know, (laughs) think my way out of it. It's really interesting hearing you say that you have seen that the feeling part and the thinking part were not communicating. Exactly, yes. We interviewed all our patients and we talked to them about previous treatments and previous therapy and how they feel now. And so many of them said they hated CBT because they failed at it. And then they blame themselves. So CBT itself became another yes. burden to them. Now we can see why. How, how can you succeed in thinking your way out of something if, if your thinking can't intersect with your no, emotions? It's like someone trying to ask me, I remember describing to a therapist once saying, it's like you're trying to ask me to run down the street and my feet are in concrete blocks. It's just not possible. It's not it's, possible. It's just not, exactly, it's just not possible. Oh, what I'm quite excited by is the possibility that after the psychedelic, when your brain is more able to communicate, maybe then you can use CBT to protect you against yes. further episodes of depression. Well, I do feel that, David, I should say that I know a lot of people that have been microdosing in different ways with mushrooms probably more through edibles than a liquid form have you heard a lot about microdosing yes uh, we've written quite a bit about it we've tried to do a study but it's illegal and it turned out to be too difficult to do a microdosing study because of the illegality because we were told that every single dose had to be given in hospital in case people had bad effects so i'd say well hang on a sec they don't have any effects that's the definition of a microdose oh no controlled drug so actually it was impossible to pay enough we didn't have enough money to bring people into hospital every day to dose them but we've looked at people microdosing themselves when we've explored whether if you gave them a placebo whether you get a, a different effect and the answer is it's at present microdosing over a period of two or three weeks it's hard to prove that it's It's different from placebo. 
but I think it's quite plausible that it is helping because these drugs are quite good at getting into the brain. And even in low doses, they will probably turn on the system a little. And that neuroplasticity that we talked about might well, that might be enough to turn on that. So I, I'm waiting for bigger studies. Now, there are two big studies going on in microdosing, proper studies, controlled studies, one in Australia for depression and one in the Netherlands for other conditions. So, you know, a lot of people have done it for a very long time and they feel that it has helped both in terms of concentration, creativity, might even improve brain function. There was an interesting paper published last year by Stamets, who's the mushroom man, and his mixture of uh, mushrooms, at least if you were doing the tests online, did seem to improve your function over time. So I think it's completely plausible. I can't say it's true, but I think... It is plausible that it does, and I, I'm looking forward to you know, the definitive answer. Oh, my God, I've got to ask this question. Often people talk about when people are dying and they've gone to different states and then they come mm-hmm. back, don't they? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is that an example of a different area of the brain? But I mean, some people would say, no, they've gone to spirits and all that. But Yeah, well, it's very similar. We actually published a paper a few years ago. We were working with the group in Liège in Belgium. They, they study what's called near-death experiences, which is what you're talking about. Yeah. And we study the effects of psychedelics. And if you plot the two together, they overlap rather a lot. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. What's going on with that overlap? It's very hard for them to scan near-death experiences. So that's why they came to us. So subjectively, the experiences are very similar. So we assume, they assume that near-death experience is kind of somewhat like a psychedelic experience because the subjective experiences are the same. So we presume that it's about breaking down these routine thinking processes, the way in which the brain does the same thing day in, day in, day in, and, and allows you to expand that communication in the brain. There are people who think the near-death experience is due to the release of DMT in the brain. So actually, it is, it's about yeah. the brain tr- trying to compensate for dying by releasing something that then produces a psychological experience. I'm not convinced about that. It's hard to test. I think there are states of the brain which you can approach either through psychedelics or through nearly dying. It's probably safer to use psychedelics. Yeah, <laughs> because this is the other thing about psychedelics. And, you know, you're talking about the power of the brain. You know, we've got 40 billion computers, you know, yes. which is just astonishing. There is a sort of, in my opinion, whether you're spiritual or not, whether you're religious, not religious, you don't believe in anything magical or different, but I do think there's a lot of incredible energy in the world and these things like psilocybin and these psychedelics can allow one to access that kind of magic, that energy in plants, that energy in the world, the reason why sometimes we think of someone and then they ring, the reason why, you know, I'm a bit witchy as a person. So the other day I knew someone's daughter was having difficulty. I don't know the person very well, but the first thing I said to him was, something's going on with your daughter isn't it and he said how the hell do you know that I said I don't know I just have this sort of mm. feeling now that that's real that happens you know and I feel like it certainly does yeah. do you know what I mean I, and I feel like these drugs that you work with allow us to kind of push a bit more into those spaces but people may be a bit scared of it yes well we certainly don't force anyone to have an experience but almost everyone who does finds it rewarding particularly in the sense that it it shows them there's an enormous capacity for the brain to be different. And that difference is usually empowering. It usually makes people more in tune with other people, more in tune with nature, more in tune with themselves. It's potentially you know, a powerful way of people actually achieving kind of what humans potential is. It's the present, you know, for many of us, we're, we're so constrained by 
our education, we're constrained by society. We don't have a chance to escape from those uh, those sort of roles and ropes that we're stuck into. No, and we're all, I think it's all about love, really. We can access love in any capacity for ourselves, for others, for the world. I mean, that's just wonderful. What you say is absolutely fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. So when you explore the psychedelic experience of people who've written, famous people, people who are articulate and who write about them, love is absolutely the one central thing. And it's uh, quite intriguing, whether they're believers like Thierry de Chardin or whether they're non-believers like Aldous Huxley, you know, love ends up being where they meet. My brain's racing. I've got two more things to ask you. I can't remember what the first one was, so I'm going to go to the second one. How are we going to affect change then? When you see places like Australia, how are we going to affect it in this country when it's so clearly helping people? Well, we've got to keep telling people who mislead the world about the harms of these drugs that they're not telling the truth or just ignorant. And, you know, I have to say that Prince Harry coming out publicly about his ayahuasca use, talking to Gabor Mate, a great friend of mine who, you know, who has pioneered this sort of fusion of self-empathetic trauma therapy with the use of something like a psychedelic and showing that actually people can get enormous benefits. Those models are going to be the critical thing in getting the public on side. But we've got to stop drugs being a political weapon. I remember my other question. How has it affected your life and changed your life? Well, uh... <laughs> Talking about drugs is not a sensible thing to do in this society because I've been vilified for the last 20 years by all sorts of newspapers. I'm the nutty professor, didn't you know? I'm Dr. Death. I got a whole slew of slides with all the insults that I've been poured on me because standing up in public and talking about this, is um, someone needs to do it and I'm well placed to do it because at least I know what I'm talking about, but it, it tracks quite a lot of uh, poison. But on the other side, I'm, I'm so honoured the fact that I was able to use a sort of scientific inquiry about drugs in the brain to actually discover something that is going to be, I think, enormous use to so many people. I think this is a revolution in psychiatry. I agree. You know, being part of that, I'm proud to be, you know, be part of that process. I think it's wonderful. Honestly, I'm going to invite myself round to your house. Thank you so much. I don't think this will be the last time that we're going to talk, but thank you so much for your time. Well, it's been a delight to talk to you. That was Professor David Nutt. Uh, I thought that was amazing. And I am very excited about his book coming out. And then I think we'll probably talk to him again. Is he a friend of the show? Damn right he is. Right. Yes, I'm saying it like that. Don't know why I'm saying it like that. Right, listeners. <laughs> got something for you it's fan messages and emails someone's been in touch via email i choose not to say your names just to let you know so please don't be upset if i don't say your name hi there hi i really enjoyed the first series of the Wellbeing lab i don't listen to many podcasts listening to a conversation i'm not part of reminds me too much of lonely school days but the Wellbeing lab is interesting and informative and understanding so thank you. I'd be interested to hear about screen addiction as a topic. Mm, social media, gaming, all of it. I worry about it for my kids, uh, but I'm sure lots of people are affected. Now, that's a very interesting one. Hadn't thought of that. I like, I like, I like. Someone else has been in touch via Instagram. Hi, Will. I've just found your podcast via Anna Martha. 
What a lovely podcast. These conversations are so important, not only to us adults, but to our young people, so they can hopefully learn earlier than we did. Uh, do have a listen to previous ones, then, if you've just found the podcast. And there's some goodies. This person says, can we talk more about teenage mental health? That's where I think so many people learn to bottle up how they're feeling and mask it instead. I wish I'd known more when I was young. Yeah, I think that's a really good one, particularly teenagers. At the moment, living in a very interesting world. So thank you very much for your messages. Now, if you want to get in touch, email hello at wellbeinglabpodcast.com. Uh, and it doesn't just have to be suggestions, by the way. You can just get in touch, let us know what you think of our conversations of our interviews or what's going on in your life yes it's not a sort of challenge for you you can only get in touch if you have if you have a suggestion um i mean obviously get in touch if you want to give amy and myself cash but email hello at wellbeinglabpodcast.com twitter at the wellbeing lab instagram and facebook at the wellbeing lab podcast next week it's adhd with vivian is sable it's a very interesting one actually uh if you like this podcast as well i mean this is boring but i'm just going to say it because it is important do give us a rating or share it with a friend maybe leave a review all of it helps us get it out to a wider audience and it keeps amy and i in the bread and soup that we need to live and if you're still listening uh, i've got a little treat for you uh, from professor nutt Here's a snippet of a chat we had at the end of our conversation about psychedelics. Can I ask you about this alcohol that doesn't, asking for a friend, that doesn't, <laughs> give, doesn't give you a hangover? Yeah, well, one of my sidelines, uh, my, outside of my work at Imperial College, I've been trying to develop an alternative to alcohol that gives you the beneficial effects, the effects that most of us want from alcohol, which is sociability, conviviality, relaxation without the hangover and without all the other nasty effects alcohol can bring. And we've, uh, we've achieved that. Uh, we've got a botanical drink called Sentia, which is a mixture of food-grade herbs, produce molecules that get into the brain and work on the GABA system, the calming system in the brain where alcohol does its calming effects. So that's available now. And I am working hard to try to make a small molecule, which would be, a, we'd call it a biomimetic, something to mimic alcohol which we could put into drinks instead of alcohol. And then we could license to any drinks company in the world and, and they could make their mocktails with what we call alcohol, with biomimetic rather than alcohol, and it will be much less harmful. So, you know, we're moving slowly in that direction. And if, you know, the sentia itself is worth trying. It's, a, it's like a vermouth. It's quite a strong flavor, but you can dilute it with uh, any mixes you like. Uh, and it, it gives you the effect of about, you know, one, one and a half glasses of wine. And it doesn't matter how much you drink, you won't get any more drunk and you won't have a hangover. This is the stuff of dreams. Did you know the Wellbeing Lab is produced by Audio AF and is part of the Acast Creator Network? It's true. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 